right, very good. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that your spirit will be with us today as we take a look at uh, what is uh, one of my very favorite stories in the whole Bible. Uh, Please uh, let your word be clear to us and speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So this really is one of my very favorite chapters in the whole of the Bible, and and it is such a such a fascinating story, and the role that it plays, and the way it really captures pretty much all the themes that are going on in the book of John, and brings them all together in one stark little story. And so uh, I, I I always stress when I get to this chapter because it's. It's so important to me, and it means so much to me, and I feel like I, there's no chance I could ever really tell you all the amazing things that are in this chapter. So, so it's always a little overwhelming whenever I get there. Sometimes I find it's easier to preach an obscure text than a really famous text, because you're like, ah, oh, I'm going to get it wrong, there's so much there. But you go to the obscure one, nobody knows that one anyway, so, so you're good. But this story is so important. And I hope you'll see that as we go along here today. The context is an important setup to what's going to take place. And the context of this story is what happens really in the whole chapter before, but specifically in the two verses right before this chapter starts. And that's what we spent time on last Sabbath. We talked about this last Sabbath, but I want to read you John chapter 8, verses 58 and 59. Now, we're going to be in John 9 today, but I want to start with 8, verses 58 and 59. And if you can remember what we did last Sabbath, here's how the Bible reads. It says, very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. This powerful claim that Jesus is making, that goes all the way back to the Old Testament revelation of God, specifically the language of when Moses is sent to deliver the people. See the parallel there? Jesus has come to deliver the people. Moses is sent to deliver the people. He says, who should I tell them has sent me? And God says, tell them I am has sent you. And now Jesus is saying, I have come to rescue you. I am, I am. That's who he is. This is the revelation. This is him being as as flat out telling them exactly what's going on as he can be. Verse 59. At this they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. So they're not able to see. They're not able to see the light of the world. Are you starting to get these themes that are playing out here? You go back to John chapter 1. And he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was the light, and that light was the life of man. He came to his own, but his own received him not. His own could not see the light that had come into the world. 
So when he reveals himself as who he is, they are blind to the reality. So this is our context. And now our story. John chapter 9. We're going to see some amazing things in this. We're going to see evidence of the I am claim. Jesus is going to do something in this story that will connect him with what John says. In the beginning was the word, through him all things were created. Jesus is going to do something that's going to reflect on the original creation of man. He is, if you're willing to see, going to reveal himself as the I am. But you have to look to see it, which really is the context of the whole story. Anyone looking can see, but anyone unwilling to look will be blind. So let's go. John chapter 9, verse 1. This is the very first words. After the last thing, Jesus says, I am. And then they take up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself and slipped away from the temple grounds. They couldn't see him. So chapter 9, verse 1. As he went along, he, being Jesus, saw a man blind from birth. Now this is an important inclusion here. This is not a man who went blind. This is not a man who has ever had functional eyes. This is a man who has never seen from birth. Verse 2. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Okay, let's start here. Let's start where the disciples are because this is a very interesting theology that they are exposing in this question. They've encountered a man born blind. That's got to be somebody's fault, right? So is this misfortune his because he sinned? Which raises an interesting question about how does one sin in utero? Or did his parents sin? Which raises an interesting question where it says, I will not punish the children for the parents' sin. This is a fabulous little theological debate that could go on for hours on a Sabbath afternoon and generate nothing useful. But it could go a long time. What is the logic behind what this question that the disciples are asking? Remember, this is the disciples. So this is reflective of a general sense. The general sense of what they're saying here is that curses are the result of wrongdoing. When a person suffers, it's the result of wrongdoing. And here's the problem. That's both true and not true, isn't it? Examples, smoking can lead to cancer. That curse can be the result of behavior. Pornography harms healthy sexuality. That curse can be a result of behavior. Poor diet, no exercise, can destroy mobility. That curse can be associated with behavior. Even Jesus supports this idea. You don't believe me, John chapter 5, real quick. We did this story earlier. John chapter 5, 
Verse 14, this is the man at the pool of Bethesda who's healed. John 5, verse 14, later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see you are well again, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. So there is a sense in which there is a line between behavior and curses that come on our life. So we can't just say they're not at all connected. But often, that's not the whole story. I think a better way to say it is this. Curses are the result of sin. Not sins, but sin. The reality that this is a fallen world, that there is sin in this world, and because of the degradation that it causes, yes, things happen. And sometimes men are born blind. So the curse, yes, it's a result of sin, and wrongdoing can lead to consequences, but here's the check. To assume another person's trial is due to a specific sin, is dangerous, and you should never do it. Even if a person smoked all their life and got cancer, you should not be smug and say it's your own fault. Don't do it. It's not helpful. So just don't, don't be that person. Don't be the person who knows why another person is suffering. Because suffering might come to you and you might get back what you deserve. So let's start again. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now that's quite an answer. On the one hand, it's an incredibly wonderful answer. On the other hand, it's an unsettling answer. Why was the man born blind? So that God's glory could be revealed in him. Because what's about to take place in this story is going to reveal the glory of Jesus. So Jesus is saying, he was born blind so that I could find him this day, heal him, and God could be glorified. That's great, except he's been blind all his life. Now on the one hand... This statement could transform how we see trials in our life. If we could embrace this statement and we could believe that God has an eternal purpose of good for us, then we could go through our suffering at least with an awareness that I have the opportunity to bring glory to God through this in a way that I could not do so otherwise. It's the person going through hardship that continues to praise God that impresses us, not the one who has everything going great. So there is a great and deep truth here. But how many of you want to volunteer for trouble? Mm. Lord, I want you to be glorified, but can it happen in a way that makes me happy and comfortable? Lord, I give you my life. Do with me as you choose, as long as what you choose agrees with my standards. 
Boy, it's a tough road, isn't it? The interesting thing about this is that this story cuts across one of our assumptions just in the same way it cut across one of theirs. And I want to suggest to you we have some different assumptions. In our day, our assumption is that life should be good. And if it isn't, something's wrong. Now, we're actually blessed to be able to live in a reality where we can assume that life will be good. Because for many of us, if not most of us, life is mostly good. Let's think it through. All of the things that thanks to medical science we survive that in another generation they wouldn't have. Appendicitis. It's inconvenient, it's painful, but you can also be cured like that. You used to die. You're fine, you get a terrible pain, and at the end of the week you're gone. No wonder people thought things were spooky. Jay has a heart attack, but he's fine. Patty had the heart condition, but you're fine. I would have never survived childhood. I wouldn't be here in front of you. We're not, we didn't invent pandemics. And a lot of people have died from this one, but a lot more would have in another era. See, we expect life to be good. But that's not always how it is, is it? And that's why this story causes us trouble to think that a man would live all those years blind just for the purpose of bringing glory to God. That's not right. So that's how it cuts across our theories. Here's how it cut across ours. Our assumption is that life should be good. Their assumption was that life should be fair. You see the difference there? See, we expect life to be good. They expected life to be fair. What that means is if a person was born blind, somebody sinned. Otherwise, it's not fair. See, they expected trouble because they dealt with more trouble, but they had to assume, well, it must be fair Jesus addresses this in another place. Do you think those ones that the, tower, the, that the tower fell on were more unrighteous than everyone else in Jerusalem? Well, yeah, everybody assumed they must be unrighteous if a tower fell on them. But no, Jesus says, that's not how it works. So we expect life to be good. They expected life to be fair. Turns out it's not always either. But in it, Sometimes we get an opportunity to bring glory to God. Let's go on. Verse 4. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So Jesus goes big here to make the point of this whole context here, tying the whole story of the book together and centering it around the reality. Jesus is the light of the world. He's here a little bit longer Try to see him while he's here. It matters because night is coming. Darkness is coming when you will not see him. Verse 6. After saying this, 
Jesus spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. If that's not the greatest story in the Bible, I, I mean, come on. That's just fabulous. He made mud, and he wipes it on the guy's eyes. Come on, that's crazy. Why didn't he just say, start seeing? Well, because Jesus needed to demonstrate something. And what he's doing is demonstrating not just that he can heal, but that he, in fact, is the creator. Are you seeing it? Here's how it works. When God made man in the beginning, what did he do? He formed him from the dust of the earth, right? And then breathed into him the breath of life. There's another interesting point here. The man does not ask for healing. I don't know if he did or didn't, but the story does not include that the man asked for healing. Jesus proactively took action. We didn't ask to be created, did we? God in the beginning proactively took action. So you see this parallel. Now why mud on a man born blind? Well, we're not told exactly what the man's condition is, but it's plausible he didn't even have eyes. It's a total non-functional reality from his earliest days. So Jesus took mud and made new eyes for him. It's an act of creation. And if you're paying attention, you will see in it the very work of the creator God in the beginning. Because he's making something happen that's never happened before. In fact, that'll be mentioned. No one's ever heard of a man being born blind gaining his sight. They'd heard of people who had gone blind gaining sight again. But nobody born blind regained their sight. But he doesn't regain it instantly. And this part I think is important as well. And we'll come back to it. Verse 7. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. That's such a crazy way to describe such an overwhelming experience. So he's got mud on his face now, and he's finding his way to the pool of Siloam. And he leans over and he rinses the mud, and when it's gone, he can see. Now there's so much that goes on in that reality. Because there is more to vision than the capacity of the eye to receive a signal. It's interesting that some people who have been blind in the past, it takes them a long time for their sight to actually be useful information. A child has to develop what sight means. Very often a person who's been blind who regains sight you toss something to them, they don't even respond. It just, 
hits them. Because that information of an object flying through the air about to hit them has no meaning. Somehow Jesus works this entire miracle to not just restore the physical reality, but to rewire the brain to know what sight means. This is an amazing act of creation that Jesus does here. And he came home seeing. This is a huge sign of Jesus' divinity if you're willing to see it. But a word about the Pool of Siloam. Alicia and I, when we were in Jerusalem, had an amazing experience. If you read in the, uh, it's the book of Kings, I think, the story of King Hezekiah when Jerusalem is being surrounded by the Assyrians, it says he dug a tunnel from the Gihon Spring and blocked up the exit so that the spring, instead of flowing into the Kidron Valley, would flow under the city and empty into the Pool of Siloam. And when we were there, we got the opportunity to walk through Hezekiah's tunnel to the Pool of Siloam. It's I think it's about a third of a mile that it goes underground. And it's quite amazing. And and you're in there and the water is anywhere from here to here on you. And usually there's enough room to stand up. But there are a couple spots where you're walking along like this and the water's right here. And you're like, "I'm, I'm eager for there to be more room as you go through this tunnel. And it's really dark in there if you don't have a light. Now, there were people in our group that had a light, but I did not personally have a light. And there were a couple times when I knew darkness. I knew the experience of the man going through that tunnel and coming out into the pool of Siloam there. Same, same pool, apparently, because there's actually an inscription on the wall there that describes the tunnel that uh, Hezekiah dug in his day. But anyway, so we had the chance to be in this spot. Verse 8, his neighbors, the man, his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him, but he himself insisted, I am the man. So apparently the transformation that took place was significant enough that people said, yeah, he looks a lot like him, but he can't be because that guy didn't have eyes. So something dramatic enough took place that the man had to say, no, really, it's me. Verse 10. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed And then I could see. All right, so I want to take you back to a sermon we did several weeks ago. Do you remember this one from when Jesus' mother comes to him at the wedding because they've run out of wine, and he says, why are you coming to me? It's not my time. And then she makes a statement. Do you remember what it was? And this was the point I wanted you to get out of that sermon. 
Whatever he tells you, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you is what Mary says to the servants. And then Jesus says, fill the water jars and it turns into wine and the whole story. But the point I wanted you to get is do whatever he tells you, no matter how crazy it sounds. And this guy is a perfect example. Jesus makes mud and wipes it on his face and says, go across town and wash yourself. He could have said, you're an idiot. Stop putting mud on my face. I'm not doing that. That's stupid. Or he could have done what Jesus said, walked across town, washed his eyes, and gained his sight. Whatever Jesus tells you, do it. Because you're going to like the outcome in the end. And here we see another example of that. Another Old Testament example of that is the story of Naaman, who almost didn't do what he was told. The prophet sends his servant out, says, go wash in the Jordan River and you'll be cured, dip seven times and you'll be cured of your leprosy. Naaman's like, you're crazy. This is a lousy river. I don't like it. I've got better rivers at home. I thought he'd come out and wave his hand over me or something, but no. And his servants say, come on, if he'd asked you something hard, you'd have done it. Just go do this little thing. And he goes and does what the Lord tells him, and he comes out clean. Whatever he tells you, do it, even if it seems stupid to you. Are you so smart that you know better than God? Whatever he tells you, do it. Verse 12, where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought him to the Pharisees, the man who had been blind. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Never mind that he just did an act of creation. He didn't do it on the right day in the right way. Therefore, he can't be from God. This is what I call the behavioral righteousness trap. If God does not do things the way I think he should, then it obviously isn't God working. If the person through which God has done a great work is not a part of my tribe, it can't be a work of God. One time Alicia and I were traveling back from Virginia to Kentucky. We were pulling a trailer with a refrigerator in it. And we were traveling on a road that used to be a toll road, but it wasn't anymore. But the gas stations had not sprung up around it like normal because it used to have travel plazas. But now the travel plazas had been shut down. And we're driving through the middle of the night, running out of gas and not knowing where to stop until we finally ran out of gas beside the road. And we sat there in the middle of the night not having any idea what we were going to do. It was probably an hour later that a guy in a pickup stopped. We prayed, yeah, we were praying. He stopped. 
He picked us up, he took us to where there's gas, he brought us back, we put the gas in the car. And he got back in his truck and he left. He also was a smoker. Does that make his act unrighteous? Couldn't have been an angel, right? They wouldn't do that. What is your test? How do you know what is a work of God and what isn't? What is your test? For the Pharisees, it was, well, he did it on Sabbath, therefore this can't be good. Here's the problem. Your test can make you blind. See, we've got to have humility constantly. We've got to quit thinking that it's what we know that makes us favored by God. No, because we're favored by God, he's given us knowledge. But it is our faith in Jesus that's put us in good standing with God. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Verse 17. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. Now here's where it gets really interesting. And here's why I think Jesus did this the way he did. Why he didn't just, he, he put the mud on his eyes to make the creation connection. But then he sent him to Siloam, which means sent. The man is sent. He called the man who'd never seen him to go and testify about him. To testify of the experience that Jesus had given him. So he went to the place called Sent. He received his calling. He gained his sight at the place God sent him. It's, it's powerful how these words and these concepts come together. And so he's, he's a rookie. He's not great at testimony yet. The first time they asked what happened, he said, the man Jesus put mud on my eyes, I washed, and now I see. It was a very basic testimony. Now the next time, he's in front of the Pharisees, and they say, what happened? What do you say about this man? And remember, he's never seen Jesus. Right? He's had an experience with Jesus, but he's never seen Jesus. And so he says he's a prophet. Now this man that Jesus has sent is not among the well-educated because I don't think you get a great education in that day when you're born blind. He's also not among the honorable because he begs. He's not among the rich because his parents don't have enough to just take care of him out of sight. Yet here he is testifying about who Jesus is in front of the great men. This is what happens when you're sent by Jesus. Verse 18, they still did not believe he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. So here's the reality. They cannot believe him because what has happened cannot happen. 
A man born blind cannot gain his sight. Here's what I'll grant them. Their conclusion is fair, but it's also wrong. It's another trap, isn't it? Where we apply what can and can't happen to the working of God. It's a trap. It's like the, the line from H.G. Wells, The Time Machine. I love this line. Very simple was my explanation and plausible enough, as most wrong theories are. We think we figured God out. We think we know what he's going to do. It's plausible. It's simple. And too often it's wrong. See, humility got to come with a humble spirit. Verse 19. Is this your son? They called the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say is born blind? How is it that he now can see? You say he's blind. Explain to us what happened. They're scolding the parents. There's a reason for this, and it'll come clear as we go along. Verse 20, we know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Kind of cowardly, I think we can agree. But can we also forgive them? That's a tough scenario. You just got drug in, this son can see, you don't know how it happened, you weren't actually there. He says it was Jesus, you're not sure who Jesus is. You don't want to get thrown out of the synagogue. It's kind of an ugly scenario, isn't it? Verse 24, a second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Okay, if you wanted a framework for a testimony, there it is. Whether this man is a sinner or not, I don't know. But let me tell you what I do know. Let me tell you what happened to me. I was blind and now I see. You have that testimony. Now you may not have been physically blind at some point in your life. Or you may have. And in your encounter with Jesus, you might not have gained sight or you may have. But something happens when you have an encounter with Jesus. And whatever that thing is that happens in your life is your testimony. So what is your testimony? In what way were you blind, you encountered Jesus, and now you see? You see, that's the story you have to tell. Can you say that? Can you say that under duress? You see, if you're so convinced that God has done an amazing work in you, you can't deny it. 
verse 26. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? What's happening here is, is they're, they're, they see that something has happened, they're, but they're trying so hard to not see what has happened. When Jesus works dramatically, it's obvious, unless you try really hard to not see. And that's what they're doing. They're trying very hard to go blind in the presence of the man who has gained sight. It's the irony of the story. Verse 27. He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Oh, now he's just inciting them. Now he's just poking them. Now he's just being annoying. Verse 28. Then they hurled insults at him. <laughs> that seems appropriate, right? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow... We don't even know where he comes from. There's that theme that keeps coming back throughout the story, different places, this disagreement on where he came from, this confusion. But I want you to catch their words here. You are this man's disciple. We're disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses. But as for this guy, we don't have any idea. So here's the trap here. Honoring the genius of the past but blind to the moment. Oh, we're good at this as Adventists. We know God spoke to Ellen White. We know God spoke to the founders of the church. But as to the crazy young people in this day, we're not even sure where they came from. See the trap? If somebody else told me this was righteous, I believe it. But for me to discern in my own age, impossible. That's where they are. The Pharisees are honoring the revelation in the days of Moses, but not honoring the full revelation in their own day. They can't see it. They're blind. They can only see what they've been told is right. That's why Jesus would say, he who has an ear, let him hear. You see, there was more of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram in the, in the Pharisees than there was Nathaniel. Remember Nathaniel, The one who encounters Jesus and immediately says, my Lord and my God. He gets it just like that. These guys are more like back in the days of Moses. Do you remember the story of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram? They said, why do you say God only speaks through you? Maybe God speaks through us too. So the Pharisees are acting like the guys who rebelled against Moses and claiming to be the disciples of Moses. This is dangerous. This is a trap for the righteous people. Verse 30 the man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. 
We know that God does not listen to sinners. Now he's getting theological. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Look at what happens to you when you start to testify. You start out tentatively saying, well, I I think he's a prophet. You go on to saying, well, I don't know about all of that, but I know I once was blind and now I see. And you end up with, well, that's amazing, all you people who think you know everything. Nobody's ever heard of this happening to somebody like me. We know God's not going to listen to a sinner. If he was not from God, he could do nothing. He goes from prophet to personal testimony to saying this guy is the son of God. That's bold. And it takes place in the context of this interrogation. And they have nothing left to say except this, verse 34. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Okay, now, do you see the link here to the beginning of the story? The Pharisees have the exact same theology as the disciples. The disciples at the beginning say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And the Pharisees are saying, obviously your parents sinned for you to be born blind. You were steeped in sin. Your whole time in your mother's womb was a sin environment, and that's why you're blind. See why the parents were a little nervous coming in? You are obviously a sinner. You are obviously not trained. How dare you lecture us? It's called ecclesiastical indignation. And this is always an uncomfortable moment for me when I read this passage. Because I think about the times when unworthy people come and tell me things that I know is not right. Ah, it's a dangerous trap. Humility is what we need. Because we never know where the voice of the Lord will come from next. Humility. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. He's never seen Jesus. And now he's having a one-on-one, and he doesn't know who he is. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. He believed in Jesus before he saw him. Because Jesus transformed his life. And the glorious day was when he finally did see Jesus and was able to fall down and worship. So he starts blind, but yet he can see Jesus. He ends up seeing, but does not recognize Jesus until Jesus identifies himself. The Pharisees start seeing, 
but blind themselves because they don't want to accept Jesus. This is the Thomas crisis. And it comes at the very end of the book where Thomas says, unless I see the nail scars and put my hand in his side, I won't believe. Thomas had to see in order to believe. But the man born blind only needed his experience to teach him. Verse 39. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What, are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin, but now that you claim to see, your guilt remains. So the story starts with a blind man who knows nothing of Jesus, who ends up seeing and believing. And Pharisees who know all about Jesus who end up blind. What does the gospel story do to you? What does your experience do to you? You see, Jesus is the light by which we see. John chapter 20, verse 29 Jesus said to Thomas, then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. One of the first ones on that list was this man born blind. He did not see and yet he believed. Now we're all in the not see group, aren't we? But has the experience of your encounter with Jesus been strong enough? that you can testify of it and your faith grows and even though you have not seen yet you still believe who do you want to be in this story that's a bit of a tough one because I don't love the idea of being born blind I don't really want to be the disciples they don't really have a clue what's going on I definitely don't want to be the Pharisees I guess I want to be that guy So what do you believe about Jesus? And does that belief drive your life? John chapter 1. We'll close with this. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light to all mankind. Are you among those who can say, I once was blind, but now I see? And is that truth worth more to you than anything else? Because here's the truth about every one of you. You are all among those who have not seen, but have been sent.
This is how you're like the man. You have not seen Jesus, but he has sent you on a mission. And that mission is to bring glory to God through the working of Jesus in your life. Can you see it? Can you feel it in your heart? Don't be like the Pharisees who do everything they can to not see. Be like the man whose testimony starts out, I'm not sure. Well, this is what happened. I know he's from God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are among those who have not seen Jesus with our eyes. But he has called each of us and come to each of us. If we've never put our faith in him, may this be the day we do that. May he open our blind eyes. And, and whatever he's telling us to do, help us to do it. We are the ones you have sent. We go wash in our own pool of Siloam, even if it sounds crazy. Because it's all preparation for the work you would have us do. Help us to hear your voice. Help us to believe what you're telling us is most important. And help us to be among those who see even what we have not seen. In Jesus' name, amen.